Hello and welcome to the Ryan Pauly Podcast. I just want to start off today's show by saying thank you and hello to all of you listening on podcast and on 100.1 KGBA. It's not every day that I address you guys and say hello and just thank you all so much for listening. I often address those who are watching. You know, over the years, uh, I started podcasting in 2016, I believe. Yeah, 2016. So it's been four to five years. And, you know, um, over the time, it's changed. And there's been a lot of different things. And as you might have recently seen over the last year, the focus really has been shifted to YouTube. And the main reason for that is I'm trying to find ways to be more resourceful and try to find ways to use my time well. And the unfortunate thing about podcasts, and this is what I hate, is is I love podcasts. I listen to podcasts. I don't watch a lot of YouTube videos. I listen to podcasts as I drive and as I ride my bike. I'm a podcast guy. But the unfortunate thing about podcasts is it doesn't get shared um, other than you sharing it, you telling your friends and family and people about the podcast. iTunes and other podcast apps don't really promote it as well as YouTube promotes videos. So for example, I just interviewed William Lane Craig this last week. You'll hear that coming up in a few weeks. But uh, it already has, in less than a week, has 4,500 views on YouTube versus my podcast gets always a few hundred. And it's kind of stayed at that level for a few years. And so because of that, just want to let you guys know that the kind of focus has shifted over to YouTube. You hear a lot more about those who are watching and things. And you guys guys, you guys kind of get the second hand, I guess. And I want to say I'm sorry for that. But that's why I'm trying to figure out how can I kind of use my time well. And it's a lot of work to record on YouTube and then record something different for podcasts. And so I've used to, I'm just uh, decided to repurpose the audio from the YouTube show onto podcast. And so that's what you get to hear. So you still get the same great content, but I'm sorry that you do not get the same love or the same attention. I don't address you specifically, um, but that is why. So I thank you guys for listening. Thank you for sticking with me. I know some of you have been around for a very long time. Some of you might be new listeners, but thank you for that. Thank you for staying consistent. And I hope that you continue to enjoy great co content from this podcast. And so with that, Here's a conversation that I had about a recent comment actually, that I did get on YouTube about love is love. Now, unfortunately, there's some visuals in this that will be hard to see. I tried to explain it well that you'll be able to follow, but if it really does become too hard and you really do want to see, because I do think it's a very helpful illustration, you can always go over and watch the love is love YouTube video and see those visuals yourself. So with that, here is today's conversation. Thanks for being here. I don't think that there is true freedom in what we think there is freedom. In fact, I think that is this desire that we have of personal autonomy, of true sexual freedom that in fact we have then hurt people. Love is love is not actually the loving thing. Love is love actually I think is more discriminating and harmful. And I think that there's nothing that shows this maybe clearer than kind of the Me Too movement of what we see in Hollywood as being portrayed as this sexual freedom of jokes in movies on sexual harassment is not taken seriously. Hey, don't get me in trouble when you say those things. And then people do it in real life and it causes victims and trauma. And we're seeing the effects, I think, of the sexual revolution and this desire for sexual freedom. And so in today's conversation, this is what I want to talk about. And, and my goal is I'm actually going to use an activity that I do with my high school students in trying to help you see where you draw the line. Because here's my conclusion that I've come to. Everyone draws a line when it comes to sexual freedom. And if someone doesn't draw any line whatsoever, 
we would all consider that person to be immoral and to be wrong. Now, it's often the Christian who gets pushback for drawing a line and creating restrictions that limit sexual freedom, but I think everyone does. And hopefully in today's show and in this little activity that we're going to do together, uh, I hope to show you that. And if you're new to the show, my name is Ryan Polly, where this is a weekly show where I try to help you think deeply about Christianity and the Christian worldview so that you can know, defend, and faithfully live out the biblical worldview. So obviously today we're talking about the topic of sexuality and hopefully giving you the, the true picture of biblical sexuality, um, how to defend that view and respond to common objections in our culture like love is love and how do we respond? How do we talk about these things so that then we can faithfully live out what God is calling us to do. And so that is the plan today. And this is actually is kind of an interesting time to do this because I just finished teaching my first week uh, to my ethics class, my senior class uh, on sexual ethics. And one week ago, I received a comment on my YouTube channel on a video that I made quite a while ago. And the video I made quite a while ago was titled, Will Gay People Go to Heaven? And in that video, to give a short summary, you can watch it later, in a short summary of it, I argued yes, because your salvation does not depend on your sexual orientation, but on your response to Jesus Christ. And I believe that a person who is same-sex attracted, I think that's maybe a, a part where we maybe get confused about is that we assume gay people means they're always acting on it. But I think a person who is same-sex attracted can submit to Christ, be forgiven of their sins, follow him, put him as Lord and Savior, and that that person can be saved just like a straight person. Your sexual orientation does not determine your salvation. It is your response to Jesus and what you do with your sins. And so this video has gotten a lot of views and gotten some pushback, but uh, a comment came in that I want to address. Now, this is also my second attempt at this live stream. I tried last night to stream and it went about 10 minutes and then my internet cut out. I don't know what happened. I moved into a new home. I thought things were working well. So this is attempt number two. I hope that this one works well. If it doesn't, then I'll end the stream and I'll pre-record it and post it later. But um, that is the goal today. And so this is the comment that came into my video, uh, Will Gay People Go to Heaven? Uh, Hope wrote in and said, the Bible is outdated. Love is love. People are literally killed for being gay not even a hundred years ago. You really think they would put something like that in the Bible that was translated by a bunch of straight white men? Ha ha, I don't think so. Now, Hope and I had a back and forth. We had a conversation about this. And, and Hope, if you're watching, I, I just want to encourage you. I, I'm, I'm not attacking you, right? We're, we're trying to discuss ideas here and try to see are these good ideas or bad ideas. And as I stated, and as I hopefully will defend and explain, I think the statement love is love is not actually loving. That we all draw a line. The question is who gets to draw the line and why is it drawn there? Now, I'm not really going to address the, the, the comments towards the end because I'm not 100% clear exactly on what Hope is saying. Um, for example, people were literally killed for being gay 100 years ago. Um, that's wrong. And if someone wants to point to the Old Testament to try to say, well, look, the, the Bible says that you should do it, uh, then there's a lot of a deeper discussion that can happen here. But what we have to recognize is the Old Testament law does not apply to New Testament Christians. Right? Jesus came and gave us a new covenant. Uh, the, the laws that applied to ancient Israel do not apply to current day United States. Uh, that is a different law for a different time and a different time period. Just like you don't have to follow, unless you are living in Japan and watching, you don't have to follow Japanese law if you live in California. As a Californian, I don't have to follow Colorado law. It doesn't apply to me. The Old Testament law is very similar. And so that's a short little response there. We can say, no, it is wrong. If you're killing people for being gay, that's wrong. And we should be able to condemn that. 
I don't think they would put something like that in the Bible that was translated by a bunch of straight white men. I'm not sure exactly what Hope is saying here because uh, the Bible was not translated by a bunch of straight white men. If she's talking about the translation, there are lots of different translations by different committees. Some are white, some are men, some are women, some are of other races. And so the Bible is translated by a very mixed group of people. And it also depends on which translation committee you're talking about. The NIV translation, the NASB, the you know, ESV, what translation? Uh, she means it's written by a bunch of straight white men. Okay, then yeah, we see the, the New Testament uh, disciples um, being that way. But again, they're Middle Eastern. Um, but anyways... I want to focus in really quickly on the first two, specifically quickly on the first one, and then looking at this idea, love is love. You often hear this comment that the Bible is outdated. Um, the question is, and I would want to ask is, what do you mean by that? What do you mean that the Bible is outdated? Because it talks about how to handle your finances. It talks about how to love and respect and honor your parents. It talks about how to obey or how, what the role of the government is. It talks about a lot of things that are very relevant to us. How to treat the sojourner and the foreigner. As my show a few months ago and talked about immigration. There's a lot of biblical principles that apply to today. And so I think that often when this statement is made that the Bible is outdated, it's because the Bible doesn't match our culture's view often of morality. And the thing is, is that assumes, to say the Bible's outdated, the Bible's moral standard is wrong, assumes that there's actually a moral standard. Unless we're just saying, well, no, morality is relative to the culture and our culture's view of morality is different than the Bible. That's true. But you can't say that the Bible is wrong or outdated or incorrect. All you can say is it's different. In order to say that the Bible is wrong, you have to have some sort of objective moral standard by which you can judge the Bible. And often the standard is simply just our culture. Here's the thing, though. Morality is objective. It's not relative. It is wrong to torture innocent children for fun. It was wrong a thousand years ago, and it would be wrong in a hundred years, and it would be wrong in ten thousand years, and it's wrong now. It's wrong everywhere. Nothing is going to make torturing innocent children for fun a good thing. And so we would say there's this objective moral standard. So just because something is old or the Bible is written a long time ago does not mean that moral standard is outdated or incorrect. Morality transcends time. Morality continues on. Murder is wrong now. Murder will be wrong in 10 years and in 100 years. And if any culture says, well, we think murder is right and legalizes murder, we would say they're wrong. And that's exactly what we did like with Nazi Germany, where they saw it to be good to murder Jews. And we went, no, 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 no. You guys are deeply mistaken. And we judged them for it. And so this idea of the Bible's outdated is often is just that the Bible disagrees with our culture. Yeah, it does. But that doesn't mean necessarily the Bible is wrong. We have to evaluate these different views. And that's what I want to do today. Now, the main thing, though, is this idea. Love is love. Now, a lot of people might have different definitions of what this means and when we should use it. And so I want to make sure to be very clear on, on what I think it often means. And if you mean something else by it, that's fine, but I'm going to be discussing my kind of definition. And really, I, I asked Hope, I said, what do you mean? Could you please define for me what you mean by love is love? And she responded and she said, we should be able to love and express our love to whoever we want. How on earth could loving someone, regardless of their sexual orientation, be a bad thing? So here again, we have to step back and, and clarify something. What are we talking? Are we talking about just loving someone? Or are we talking being in a sexual relationship with them? Now, often, love is love is used 
to refer to sexual relationships because it's saying, hey, if, if a straight person can love and have sex with their husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, well, love is love. And so why not with same-sex individuals, right? If they love each other, then why not also have sex? So it's often talked about in a sexual way. It's also was kind of that idea of love wins and love is love that was huge when same-sex marriage was legalized in the United States. So often this doesn't simply just talk about loving someone and caring for them. It's talking about that sexual relationship. If we simply are talking about loving someone, then yeah, I don't disagree here. We should love all people regardless of their sexual orientation. We should love straight people and we should love gay people. We should love Republicans and we should love Democrats. We should love Christians and we should love non-Christians. The biblical command is to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, the two greatest commandments. And so a biblical ethic would agree that we are called to love all people, but loving someone does not mean having sex with them. In fact, again, when I, my students kind of bring up this idea of, but they love each other. I go, I can think of someone that you know very well, that you love probably very deeply that you should never have sex with. Like your parents. And they normally kind of go, oh, no, don't say that. No, it's like, but it's true. There's a lot of people we love. I love my brother. I love a lot of people. But it doesn't mean that we should be in sexual relationships with them. And so this is a, often an idea that is presented. And so what I want to do now is I want to kind of go over a way that I teach this to my students. When I first started podcasting, I, I used to kind of give teaching lessons. Hey, here's how I teach the evidence for the resurrection. Here's how I teach things. And I haven't done that for a while. And so what I want to do is I want to work through an activity that I did with my students this week. All three of my senior ethics classes went through this. And so I want to go over it with you today and try to help clarify this idea of what do we mean by love is love and what are the boundaries that we establish when it comes to sexuality. So um, I have this keynote that I bring up and I have just Google searched uh, as many different types of sexual expression as I could. Let me make this a little bit bigger. Um, and so we work through them one by one. And so here's what I tell my students. I said, look, imagine that we are establishing a new society and we are determining the rules and we are going to determine the things that are morally good or morally acceptable, the things that we are going to allow in our society and the things that are immoral, the things that are wrong, the things that we are going to stop, create rules against or punish. And so you have to determine where you stand with each one of these sexual actions. And, and if the class disagrees on one, then I put it in the middle and we have a discussion. Okay, why do you guys say this should be allowed? And why do you guys say this should not be allowed? And they have a little debate, a little discussion, trying to determine the morality of a certain action. Now, obviously, since you don't have, uh, you're not in my class right now, um, I'm just kind of going to set what often is a cultural standard or maybe one of the more common responses. So I will work through these one by one. So for example, cohabitation, uh, living together in a sexual relationship before you're married. Most time, yeah, that's good. That's fine. Okay. Uh, sexual harassment. No, 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 no. You can't harass people sexually. That's wrong. All right. Ecosexuals, those who receive sexual pleasure from plants and the ecosystem. They kind of find that one to be, uh, no, that's, that's, that's weird. Don't, don't do that. Objective sexuality, uh, sexual pleasure from objects. Nope. That's not good. It's supposed to be people. Okay. Polyandry. Uh, so we're talking about here, um, I'm going to mess up some of these terms. So that would be, if I remember off the top of my head right, that would be uh, one woman, one wife with more than one husbands. 
more than one husband. Should a woman be able to have five or six or 10 or 15 husbands? Most of the time they would say, no, that's not okay. Sexual purity. This would be the biblical view of sex, that sex inside of marriage, and which I've always had 100% of the time saying, yes, that's good. People should be able to have sex with their husband or wife. All right, homosexuality. Often in my classes, this is uh, falls in the middle where students will argue uh, for and both against it, but our culture's view is for, so we'll put it over here. This is what our culture said, that homosexual sex and marriage is fine. Uh, sadomasochism, inflicting pain during sex, which most people would say no. Bisexuality, yeah, that's okay. If you're attracted to both sex, go for it. Polyamory, um, many lovers. So this would be like a group marriage. So uh, you have three women and five men all in one marriage. So that's eight people in a marriage. Uh, no, no, that's not okay. Pederasty, uh, men with boys. No, that's wrong. Rape, definitely wrong. Bestiality, that's wrong. No sex with animals. Polygamy, one man with many wives. No, that's wrong. Only one wife. Incest, family members. No, that's wrong. Adultery, that's also wrong. Don't cheat on your husband or wife. Uh, having sex outside of marriage, fornication. Yeah, that's okay. And pedophilia. No, that's wrong. All right, so here is generally, I think, what we could say is our cultural view of sexuality and our sexual ethic. And this, again, I take more time and we discuss this and try to come to that conclusion. But then here comes the question. Why is the line drawn here? Now, notice something. No one, in my view, deletes the line and says, everything is good. No one is allowing for complete sexual freedom. And if someone did, we would go, horrible. How dare you? No, these things are actually wrong. And I would agree. Everyone has a line. The question that we're trying to ask ourselves is, why is the line drawn there? And who gets to draw it? Who gets to draw it? So Christians will draw the biblical view of marriage and what they understand to be revealed. And, and, and this is where, again, a couple questions I want to ask as I work through this. The first thing is this, and I love this question. I learned it from Sean McDowell. But the question is this, is marriage, is our sexual ethic, is it more like gravity or is it more like monopoly? Now, what do I mean by that? Is it like monopoly in the sense that we have created monopoly, we created the rules, and even though there's a rule book for monopoly, you can still play by your house rules. If you want to play by a different rule where each time you pass go, you get more money, you can do that. You're not wrong in creating your own house rules. Anyone can play monopoly however they want as long as they kind of agree to the rules that they play. Is that what our sexual ethic is like? That we have created sex and marriage and we get to create the ethic and we can make the ethic whatever we want and kind of within our own house, our own communities, we can just agree upon an ethic and that's what ours is. Is that what our sexual ethic is like? Or is our sexual ethic and marriage like gravity? Gravity is something that is built into the nature of the universe, something that we have not created, but we have discovered. Yes, we create language to describe gravity, but we're describing what we have discovered, and you can't change it. You can change the rules to monopoly and play however you want, but you can't change the rules to gravity. If you stop believing in gravity, you don't float up to the ceiling. Right? You can find ways to counteract it, to go against it, but gravity itself does not change. No matter what we believe about it, no matter if you don't like it, you go, man, I don't like the way gravity works. It makes me weigh too much. Let's, let's lessen gravity so I don't weigh as much. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you don't just get to change it. Gravity is something that we have discovered. And so the question is, is marriage and sexual ethic, is it like gravity, something that we have discovered, or is it something that we have created? 
Well, here the biblical view says it's something that we have discovered. It's something that is built into the nature of our universe by God. And we get this idea from a few places. For example, the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2. The end of Genesis chapter 2, God is created in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 2, he begins to work through the creation account, introducing Adam to the different animals and the different aspects of creation. And here at the very end, in verse 23, God creates the woman. And then Adam looks at her and says, Oh my goodness, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then notice right after this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Before there was any government to establish the institution of marriage, God created Adam and Eve and said, then you're going to leave your father and mother, become one flesh in that sexual union of marriage. Jesus repeats this in Matthew chapter 19. So Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees come up and say, hey, Jesus, is it lawful for one to divorce his wife? Right here in verse 3. Jesus responds in verse four and says, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He said, therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Notice here he quotes from Genesis one, God made them male and female and Genesis two, he shall leave his father and mother, hold fast and become one flesh. Jesus continues on and says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And so we see a very clear idea. There's one man and one woman. They will leave their family, become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let them not separate. And so we have for one lifetime. So when we jump back to this, let's see if I can do this right. There we go. If we were to describe the biblical view of marriage, we'll kind of put it over here. We have one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. Now, let me just point out again, this is not just my opinion. And this is going to be really important as we talk about the implications and the practical application of this. This is not just my opinion. It's me not just creating a standard and making it whatever I want based on what I like and don't like, what I find gross and, and good and, and that kind of stuff. This is a discovered, a revealed standard by God, the creator of the universe, who has designed us to function in this way. Now then we can jump ahead and we can look at things like 1 Peter. Where 1 Peter says in verse 11, 1 Peter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Here's one thing that I try to help my students understand. I think it's important for us to understand in this conversation. Often the argument is made that because someone has a desire, a passion, that they should be able to act on it. Right? That's often the argument. When I ask students, for example, I say, why should homosexual sex, homosexual same-sex marriage be fine, be legal, be promoted? And it's, well, they love each other. They have a desire. That's what they like. They're born that way. However, I go, but I don't think you actually believe that anyone who has a desire should be able to act on that desire. Think about a husband and a wife. If the husband has a desire for another woman, would his wife say, oh, well, yeah, you have a desire for her? Go for it. No, his wife would say, no, you, you need to control yourself. In fact, you need to choose to have self-control over that desire in your, in, to honor me, 
to honor your wife. You need to honor your wife, respect and love your wife by controlling that desire. See, there are desires that we have. In fact, we all have desires that we ought not act on. And we see here in 1 Peter 2 that there are these passions and desires of the flesh that we need to abstain from. See, here's, I think, the beautiful thing about the Christian view is, the hard part is that our desires don't always change. Right? We, we think that freedom means that our desires go away and we no longer have these desires for inappropriate things, desires of the flesh. No, the, the biblical view is that our freedom is that we can choose to abstain from those desires. Our desires don't control us. See, this is another big thing when you just think about the worldview of, of kind of, of secularism and how it's impacted our culture is this idea that we are purely animals. Animals have these natural instincts and they act on them. Your cat has the natural instinct to go kill a mouse. We don't shame the cat. We go, that's just what the cat's instinct is. That's the natural instinct. And so for us, when we begin to believe this picture that we are no longer God's image bearers, but instead we are just highly evolved animals and then we have these natural instincts, these natural impulses, these natural desires. Well, if it's a natural desire, go for it. Act on it. Morality doesn't govern animals. And if we're just animals and we're following a moral standard like that, then, then just simply act on the moral desires. And, and that's why we have people who, who literally teach that to have any sort of religious parameter, restriction on our sexuality makes things unhealthy, makes people unhappy, hurts people. I think it's actually the opposite, as we will see coming up. And so we understand that just because you have a desire does not mean you do it. You want to lie to your parents, you should not. You want to cheat on the test, you have a desire to cheat, you choose not to do it. And in, in your respecting and loving of your wife, you choose not to act on a desire for someone else in the same way that we love and respect God. And we choose not to act on desires that are not right. First Peter 2 really, I think, helps make this clear. Also, finally, is people say, well, Jesus never said much about sexuality. And Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Well, that's not necessarily true either. Here in Mark chapter 7, Jesus talks about what defiles a person. And he called the people in the verse 14, and they said to him, hear me out, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then he entered the house and the people left. The disciples were like, hey, uh, we, you know, we don't have any understanding. What do you mean by this? And in verse 21 or verse 20, Jesus says, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For, what, for, for from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensu sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And so what do we see in the ethic of Jesus? Well, we see this idea that sexuality, and he calls what he calls sexual immorality, is inside marriage is good. Outside marriage is bad, is sin. Again, this is Jesus' view. And why this is so important is that this idea of sexual morality, that's talking about fornication, that's talking about homosexuality, that's talking about incest, that's talking about all these different kinds of sex outside of the one man, one flesh, one woman 
lifetime marriage. This is the biblical sexual ethic. And here's what I think is really important about this is, is that this ethic gives a very clear definition to marriage and to sexuality. Our culture often finds it that, that we should not tell someone that they're wrong, that, that, that we can't discriminate. Like discrimination is not wrong. Discriminate is being able to tell the difference between two. We do this, in fact, all the time, and we have no problem with it. If I go to the movie theater and I say, I would like a student discount, the movie theater will say, no, you don't get one. Well, why not? You're not a student. All right, there's a very clear line defining what a student is. Students get discounts, non-students don't. I don't qualify and therefore I don't get it. The same thing at McDonald's. I want a kid's meal. No, you can't have one. They only are for 10 years old and below or 12 years old and below. Well, then give me a senior citizen coffee. Sorry, you can't have that either. That's only for 65 and older. All right, we have very clear definitions of what makes a child, what makes a senior citizen, uh, a, a member at Costco. In fact, even with my students, we discriminate on who can come to my classes. Only a student at my school can join my class. If you're a student at another high school or some parent or some other, some adult, some random stranger off the street, you can't just walk into my classroom, right? We're going to discriminate, but it's based on a clear definition of a student, of a senior citizen, of a child. And so, and it's also not a definition that I just made up based on what I like and don't like. You know, I just don't like these kind of people. And so I'm going to define it as this. No, this is a clear definition created by God, built into our universe before there's any human institution to create these things. And it allows us to easily tell the difference between one or two things. Here's the problem. In our culture, our culture says this definition, this standard, bad. We don't like the standard. The standard is limiting. The standard is restrictive. The standard is homophobic. The standard is intolerant. The standard is discriminatory. The standard is whatever. Get rid of the standard. But the problem is, as I mentioned before, no one gets rid of the standard. Everyone draws a line. And so the question is, okay, if your line does not come from an objective standard, God creating sexuality and sexual ethic and marriage, then who gets to create the standard and, and why is the line drawn here? And this is where you often say, hey, well, Christian view says, hey, these sort of things right here, these, these things are wrong. How dare you? How dare you draw a line and condemn certain people group? Okay, well, guess what? There's still a line here that condemns certain people group. So this is where I often will get the comment that comes in, like I showed at the beginning of the show, that says the standard love is love. How dare you discriminate against someone who loves each other? So this is what I do with my students. And I begin to walk through to figure out where is the line? And I say, okay, what about someone who says, hey, Actually, if the, line is if the line is freedom, no one should restrict us sexually. If someone wants to argue that, it's free. There should be no sexual restrictions. Okay, what about rape? Rape becomes good? Everyone will say, no, of course not. All right, so then what makes rape bad? Do we really believe in free, complete sexual freedom without any constraint whatsoever? No, there's definitely a constraint to love is love. What is that constraint? often the answer is consent. That's our culture standard. Consent. As long as you have consent, you're fine. All right, well then let's work through this. Um, okay, as long as you have consent. What about something like pedophilia? What if a 60-year-old man wants to have sex with a 10-year-old girl 
and she consents, then are we going to support it, promote it, and encourage it and be happy about those that couple? And the answer, hopefully, again, is, well, no. Why not? They consent. To which the answer here is often, well, she's not old enough. Or there's two options. She's not old enough or it's illegal. She can't legally consent. And this is where you can kind of go one or two ways. If, if your answer is because, well, it's illegal, then the question is, well, does legality, does what is legal determine our morality? If you want to believe that, then before 2015, same-sex marriage was illegal. Would you agree then that same-sex marriage was immoral? And we were, and our culture was advocating for something immoral. Now, often the answer is going to be, no, that's not what I'm saying, because we were advocating trying to get freedom for something that was good or should be accepted. Okay, so then your rules don't come from simply what is legal, because what if we legalized pedophilia? What if we legalized rape? Then you'd have to say it's good, but we wouldn't. We would say our culture is corrupt. So then often it's, well, but she's not old enough. Okay, so now we kind of create the standard where you have to be old enough. So now is the view that we should have complete sexual freedom with no restrictions, except for the restriction of consent and age. Love is love as long as you consent and as long as you are old enough. Yes, that's my view. Okay, so what about incest? You have a 50-year-old mom and a 30-year-old son. They're both above age. They consent. They love each other. Are we going to support that? The answer often is no. Why not? Well, because they are related. The line now has a relationship. Notice the restrictions that we begin to add. Love is love. As long as you consent, you're old enough and you're not related. Okay, love is love. As long as you have consent, you're old enough, you're not related. All right, let's go with polygamy. Polyandry. But polygamy. A man wants to have 10 wives. They all consent. They are all old enough and none of them are related. Well, no, you can't have that. That's wrong too. Well, why? Well, it can, it can, it can only be one other person. It says who? It says who it can only be one other person. That's just a, your opinion that you are enforcing on other people, discriminating against the polygamous person because you just don't like it? Or do you actually have an objective standard that you're referring to that's unchanging by which you can judge these things? See, this is the difficulty is in, when our culture has de deleted, gotten rid of, thrown out the clear objective biblical standard of one man, one woman, one flesh for one lifetime, any sex inside of marriage is good, anything outside is sin, that applies equally to everybody. When we throw that out, it's like McDonald's saying, hey, we're going to throw out the standard of a kid's meal. Anyone can get a kid's meal. And I walk up and say, hey, I'd love a kid's meal. And they say, no, not you. Why not? Well, you, you have a beard. We don't like be people with beards. What? You know, I just, no, not you. That's, that's weird. But you said it's for everybody. Yeah, it is. It's for everybody. There's no line. Complete freedom. Anyone can have a kid's meal. All right. So I'd like one, but not you. Says who? This is unjust discrimination where we discriminate and, and don't give something to someone because we just don't like them, where we think that something is gross or something is wrong, but we don't actually have a reason for it to be wrong. So again, it's important here, this idea of saying love is love, that's not the loving thing. We often think it's unloving to say that someone is wrong. But I, again, I want you to think about another example here. A teacher who's teaching first graders how to do math. Let's say you got little Johnny 
And on Little Johnny's math test, he puts 2 plus 2 is 7, and 1 plus 4 is 15, and, and 1 plus 1 is 11, and let's say he gets every single answer wrong on his math test. Is the loving thing to do to say, good job, Johnny, 100%, you got them all right, way to go. No, you're setting up, up for failure. It's also not loving to go, glass, look, little Johnny. He doesn't even know what one plus one is. How horrible. Oh, let's all laugh and mock him. That's, that would be horrible. And that teacher should be fired. The loving thing to do is to come sit down next to little Johnny and say, hey, why do you think that one plus one is 11? Right? You don't just say, hey, you're wrong. Here's the right answer. You come sit down next to someone. Hey, why do you think this? How did you come to this conclusion? Because you want to try to figure out where in his thinking he went wrong so that you can correct the wrong thinking to help lead him to correct conclusions. You don't just come slam him with the truth, but you ask him questions to know what he was thinking to help clear up wrong thinking to, correct, to help him lead him to truth. That's the same thing that I'm trying to do here with this activity in my students. We have this incorrect thinking that love is love somehow is our standard for sexuality or consent is our standard. And as my conversation with Hope, it came up is what I'm not necessarily doing is I'm not necessarily say I'm not necessarily saying that homosexuality, if you allow for homosexuality, then all of a sudden we're going to start raping everybody and we're going to start having bestiality. That's not what I'm saying. All right, the Bible lists many different sexual sins and it doesn't even say that homosexuality is the worst sin. So I'm not comparing these different actions saying homosexuality is the same as bestiality. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm doing is I'm evaluating the logic. I'm evaluating the reason. I'm trying to say, why? how did you come to this conclusion? How did you come to the conclusion that this is good, but adultery is bad? What's the line? What's your logic? What's your thinking here? And then what I want to do is I want to apply what's called an argument from absurdity. Now, I tell my students all the time that uh, they all know what an argument from absurdity is, and it happens like this. They say, hey, mom, dad, can I go to the party tonight? And your parents say, no, you can't. Oh, come on, but everyone is going. Well, if everyone jumped off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff too? <laughs> That's an argument from absurdity. Now, notice, your parent who says that is not saying that going to a party is equivalent to jumping off a cliff. What they're doing is they're evaluating the reason. If your reason for going is everyone is going, everyone is doing it. If everyone is doing it is a good reason to do something, then is it a good reason to do this? Jump off a cliff? No. Okay, then maybe our reason everyone is doing it is not actually a good reason. We need to think about a better reason. And so this is what we are left with is saying, who gets to create the reason? This reason love is love. Is that really a good reason? Well, no, because if love is love, then we have all these other issues. Well, then we add consent. We say, well, as long as you consent, but then we don't allow for consent within polygamy. Well, because it can only be one husband or one wife. Okay, well, then what about incest? Well, no, you can't be related. All right, well, then what about pedophilia? No, you have to be old enough. Everyone draws a line somewhere. The question is who gets to draw it? And is your line actually an objective standard or is your line your opinion meaning you have this more discriminatory view towards the other side. Here's the issue, as I talked about at the very beginning of the show, is that when we remove the very clear definition of marriage and sexuality given to us in Scripture, 
what happens. And one of the consequences of the sexual revolution, one of the consequences of us having this desire for free and complete freedom of sex is that we, it has led to society-wide confusion. We are confused. We, one, don't know where the line is and we don't know who gets to draw it. We go, well, it's whatever's legal. But then if we legalize some things that are bad, then we would see ourselves as immoral. It's whoever's in power. But well, the people in power before had same-sex marriage being illegal and you thought that was wrong. So it's definitely not the people in power. Who gets to draw the line? And we're confused. And not only has it led to confusion in this sense, but it's led to confusion on how we should act with other people. So again, movies. Recently watched a movie where there was this side joke where a guy in an office said something really inappropriate about a woman right in front of his boss. And his boss just kind of joked and went, ah, hey man, keep doing that. You're going to get me in trouble. Not, he didn't take it seriously. He didn't condemn him for sexual harassment. He didn't do anything like that. He joked about it. And you see movies and TV shows in Hollywood that talk about, you know, one night stands and getting drunk at parties and hooking up with someone and, and all sorts of sex outside of marriage. And in fact, I ask my students, I say, can you think of a single movie or TV show that teaches a biblical view of sexuality? That says that sex is something that should be, is beautiful and should wait for marriage. Or can you think of a movie or TV show that shows some sort of sexual immorality and actually condemns it, says that this was a problem. Very few movies can be thought of. So we have this idea being presented in culture of that sexual freedom is good, there should be no restrictions, and we joke about sexual harassment, and we joke about these things, and then people begin to live it out. And people begin to do it. And that's why three years ago in 2017, we really saw the Me Too movement come forward, where all of a sudden women said, hey, I'm a victim. I've been harassed. I've been assaulted. I've been whatever. There is trauma now in my life because people actually lived out the idea of complete sexual freedom, no lines, and it causes pain and destruction in people's lives. So we go, clearly there needs to be a line. Sexual harassment, bad. But what makes it bad? What makes it bad? What we understand in Christianity is that the Bible has commanded us to love our neighbor, to love ourselves. God has created sex and sexuality and marriage to be a wonderful and beautiful thing. The desires that he has given us are good desires. The problem is that our sin nature has corrupted it, has corrupted us to where we begin to twist it, where we have a disordered view of sexuality where we begin to see people as objects for our sexual pleasure, not people to be loved. Princeton University did a study where they saw that uh, men who looked and regularly viewed women in scantily clad clothing, it actually activated the tool use part of their brain where they started to see women as objects to be used rather than as people to be loved. Right, we go, pornography, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt anyone. Yeah, if you want to look at it, no big deal. And again, in every single movie I can think of, it's a joke. Oh man, yeah, the guy's got porn on his computer and it's no big deal, whatever. But then when that literally begins to shift their thinking to where women become objects of sexual pleasure, not people to be loved, it disorients the very built-in image of God in us that we are called to relate and to love one another. And we begin using one another then we create victims and there's 
disaster and there's trauma in lives. But we go, no, we're free, right? It's a beautiful thing. Love is love. Act and do what you want. And other studies show that it doesn't, porn doesn't just change how you view women, but it literally changes the anatomy and physiology of your brain to where the more people look at porn, it releases chemicals in their brain that their brain becomes dependent on. And some researchers, some psychologists have even equated it to watching pornography is like taking crack cocaine, the same way that you become addicted to co cocaine and your body starts requiring it and needing it and then needing more and more. The same thing is true with pornography. And that's why some people can sit there for two, three, four hours. I hear stories of watching porn and still not get satisfied because they need more and more and more. And we say, hey, we're free, right? We're free. Guys, that's not freedom. We also see that pornography shrinks areas of the brain connected to decision-making. That it makes us less motivated to get stuff done. And so in our desire to have complete sexual freedom, not only are we hurting people, not only are we sp spreading sexually transmitted diseases, not only are we causing trauma in lives, not only are husbands having affairs on their wives and breaking up families and destroying relationships, the beginning of my chapter, I asked my students, how many of you know someone whose relationship has been destroyed by sexual activity? And they all have. A friend went and cheated on another friend or something happened or, or even a dating couple. They got too close. They were intimate. They had sex. They broke up and now they can't even speak to each other. They hate each other. Not only has it done all that, but then it causes us to lose our motivation where we are physically addicted we become addicted to it. It restructures our brain, causes us to view people as objects, and we call that freedom. That's not freedom. That's bondage and destruction. Now, there's a lot more areas of this that I could talk about, but I don't want to go into everything. I want to think about, again, that comment that came in at the very beginning or at my channel a week ago. Love is love, right? There's a lot of people that you love, and I guarantee you, if you had sex with that person, you would destroy the relationship. See, our culture wants to say that we love sex, right? And the Christians, they hate sex because they are always condemning it. It's the opposite. It's not the people who have lots of it that love it more. In fact, my goal with my students, and I told them it's in my book, I'll read it right here. If we pay close attention to what the Bible says, we can learn to love sex too. Real sex. Sex that builds trust rather than destroys it. We can, I, it doesn't take long to think about how trust has been destroyed because of some sort of sexual activity. In friends and families, it has caused massive amounts of destruction. We want to love the true version of sex that builds intimacy, that builds trust, between a married man and a woman. The problem though is, is that as soon as we reject the biblical standard, we lose an objective way to look at this. We lose the standard that actually is there for our protection. Think about it. Again, I'm, I'm kind of getting close to wrapping up. So if you have comments or questions, things that you want to hear discussed, uh, please comment in the live stream. Thank you for joining today. And I'm glad it looks like the live stream has worked the whole time. But think about it. If everyone lived according to the biblical view of sexuality, that they only had sex inside of marriage with a husband or wife, what would that culture be like? No more sexually transmitted diseases, far fewer divorces, unwanted pregnancies would pretty much be gone, no more abortion, 
families would stay together, children would be raised by mothers and fathers. That's a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing. And so I think that what we have to come against are one, these slogans. The slogans that are said, that might sound persuasive, they go, wow, yeah, love is love. But when we actually stop and think deeply about this slogan, we realize that it really means nothing. Wait, so you love someone, you should be in a sexual relationship with them? Well, clearly, and this is what I said, clearly, you don't believe that. Right? I want to give the person the benefit of the doubt. I, I, I don't think you actually believe this. Can you tell me what you mean by that? So would you apply it here as well? No, of course not, right? Okay, so then what is the standard? That's the first thing we have to come against. The second thing we have to come against is, is this idea of relative morality, subjective morality, that our morality changes from person to person. That's one thing that Hope said in, in my conversation with her. She said, well, I said, well, you're calling my line wrong, right? My line and where I draw my line for biblical sexuality is wrong. And she said, no, I'm not saying your line is wrong. Obviously, it's right for yourself, just not right for someone else. That's not how it works. Morality isn't right. That's true for you, but not for me, right? That's the common saying. But is that statement true for everybody? We, we would never say, well, yeah, murder, yeah, it's wrong for you, but it's right for this person. No, murder is wrong. Morality is objective. And we have a fear of going there because then what we're saying is that someone is wrong. But again, that's where we have to challenge ourselves and say, it's not wrong to tell someone they're wrong, but it might be wrong how you're doing it. Right? With little Johnny, we don't laugh at him. We don't mock him. We don't even come over in private and just slam him with the truth. <sighs> come on, Johnny, look. It's, 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 one plus one is two. Two plus three is five. Come on, two plus two is four. Figure it out, Johnny. You don't do that either. But you give someone the benefit of the doubt. You come alongside them and you say, hey, what do you mean by this? How did you come to this conclusion? What do you mean by love is love? Do you really believe in, in complete sexual freedom without any limitation whatsoever? No, yeah, I, I didn't think so. Okay, so then what are the limitations? What are the constraints? All right, so there's consent. Is that it? Okay, but so what about this? What would you do in this situation? And the goal is not to slam them, but the goal is to lead them to the truth, just like you want to come alongside little Johnny and say, why do you think one plus one is 11? Is it because you put them together? Rather than added them, oh, that's what you're doing. All right, so that's why you had three plus five is 35. Okay, I see the problem. All right, so here's what we do. And we want to teach good thinking and try to help lead people to the truth. And when we are living in the truth, that is when I believe that we are most flourishing. And that is what I believe is when we are doing best. Scripture says, the truth shall set you free. We no longer live in the bondage of addiction. We no longer live in the wake of destruction because of broken sexual relationships. We can live in the true goodness and beauty in the way that God has created it to be. That is my goal. And that is what I want people to see. And so my students finish by asking me this and saying, okay, well then what do we do? Do we make it illegal? Do we start throwing everyone in jail who's cohabitating and fornicating and is homosexual? No, that's not it. I don't think that we start making it illegal and throwing everyone in jail. Why? Because most people creating more rules and laws doesn't change the heart. It doesn't change the heart. You can, right? You can create lots of rules inside of a family. And if the child does not believe it's a good rule, they'll either obey because they go, ah, fine, I have to obey my parents, but this is really dumb. Or they just get sneaky and they find a way around it. My goal is to change hearts. Now, I do believe that laws are very important, so please don't misunderstand me there. There are absolutely things that need to be 
illegal, but the goal is to create legal laws, create laws so that we can actually punish evil, but also changing hearts. So you don't just get more sneaky people, more defiant people, but people who genuinely desire what is true, good, and beautiful. And so I think that as we look through this topic and we look at the sexual confusion that we are in and we discuss the way that this goal or this desire of of sexual freedom has destroyed relationships and hurt people and left victims behind, then our eyes are open where we stop believing the cultural lie that this is normal. This is good. This is perfectly fine. To, 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 to act out in this way is the exact same to act out in this way and there's no difference. No, that's simply not true. That's simply not true. And so when we look at cohabitation that, that, that my students are, well, what about, yeah, living together? You got to try each other out. You realize that cohabitation actually is shown in multiple studies to lead to higher rates of separation, less likely to reconcile. Now, it's not that you don't reconcile just because you live together before you're married, but it's the, the very approach that we take into our marriages. Is the goal, I have to figure out if I'm sexually compatible because that is a deal breaker for me. And so the moment you no longer satisfy me in that way, I'm out of here. That's often the, what not what someone would say, but it's the attitude when it says, I have to have sex before marriage to know that we're compatible because, hey, if we try it out and it doesn't work, that's a deal breaker, right? I'm no longer happy. You don't, you don't satisfy me. I'm not happy. I'm out. What this does is it creates the view that you are always on a tryout for a team. You're always trying out. You're always having to perform at perfection because the moment you don't perform well, you're cut. Rather than the beauty of when you try out and you work really hard, you get on the team and now you can relax and just enjoy playing the game. That's what I think is also beautiful of the biblical view of marriage is it's no longer a tryout. My wife and I, we're not, nothing's happening. We're here the rest of our lives. Nothing's going to separate that. Now, now I just want to play well and enjoy the marriage. Love well. Not in this fear and tension that the moment I stop making her happy, she's just going to be gone. But now I'm just going to make her happy because I want to. Without this fear of like, I have to, I need to, or else something horrible is going to happen. There's such a beauty in the biblical view that God has designed for us. And I think our culture has lost it in the pursuit of sexual freedom, which no one actually gives. So there's a longer answer to, I think, a very important topic that comes in of, hey, where's the line at? Where do we understand it? Well, what we see here is that the Bible has a very clear standard. No one deletes the line perfectly. And this standard is actually good for us. It's beautiful. It's good for us. It has good consequences. And it's good because it's grounded in the nature of God and revealed by him. This is not just my opinion. This is not just what I think. This is what God has revealed to us. So um, I hope that this has helped. Now, a couple little, uh, don't go away because I have a couple announcements. It should be fun. Next week, Sean McDowell is going to be coming on the show to discuss his book, um, chasing love. And this is, again, love, sex, and relationships in a broken, confused culture. And so we're kind of going to be continuing this topic in a different way. You can ask him questions. You can join there. At the end of the month, on Friday, what is 
that date. I don't have my calendar right here in front of me. The very last Friday of the month, I'm going to be attempting and we're going to be doing the second. That should be Friday the 29th. So Friday the 29th of January at about 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, p.m. California time, Pacific time, I'm going to be doing another live call-in Q&A show. And so if you have questions, you can either send them in ahead of time. If you don't want to call in, uh, you can start sending those questions in now. You can follow on social media where all that information is and where you can begin sending in those questions. You can send them in on the community tab. Or if you want to join live Friday about 2 p.m. Pacific time on the 29th of January will be my last call-in show. And then I'm in the works with another William Lane Craig interview for February. And so we're just nailing down a date for that, but that should be coming up as well, hopefully, unless something happens. So some fun, exciting stuff come up in the future. If you have enjoyed this, it would be such an encouragement to me if you could share this with other people so that they could enjoy it well. Again, my goal is simply just to get, I think, this beautiful message, the beautiful picture of sexuality that God has created out to more people, to understand the, the consequences and, and the things that have happened to us because of our desire for sexual freedom. And in fact, we are less loving, right? You don't say love is love and therefore pedophilia is okay and we're going to love people by letting that happen. No, that's not loving the girl. And so we actually have to restrict by restricting our sexual desires and abstaining from desires of the flesh, we are more loving, more caring, and I believe a more accurately discriminating and more better deciphering between what is good and bad, right and wrong, and truly protecting goodness, protecting people and punishing guilty. So um, I hope this message has helped. And I just want to get it out to more people. And I hope this activity has helped that maybe if you're a teacher or Sunday school teacher or something like that, that they, something like this can be used. If you have comments, I'd love to hear your comments on ways that, to change the activity, the ways that you think it could be better or worse. But with that, I am going to sign off on this Saturday morning live stream. So with that, have a wonderful weekend, everybody. I will see you later. Have a good rest of your day. God bless. And continue to think deeply about God and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. God bless everybody. See you. I just won't hesitate to follow your love.